This is episode 7 of this podcast. This is the case which is known as the A6 murder. It took place in 1961 in the UK. There were two victims. One was murdered and the other one was left paralysed. The crimes took place on the 22nd of August of 1961. Michael Gregston was shot dead and his mistress, who was called Valerie Storey, had been raped and then shot four times. Amazingly, though, she did not die, but she was left paralysed from below the shoulders and remained so for the rest of her life. The crime scene had been discovered by a person named John Kerr, who at the time was an Oxford undergraduate who was conducting a traffic census. He had started early and had come upon the crime scene. He found the body of Michael Gregston and the semi-conscious Valerie Storey. John Kerr immediately set out to find someone to help. He managed to flag down a farm labourer who in turn flagged down someone else who would call for an ambulance. The scene had been discovered on the 23rd of August of 1961 at about 6.45 in the morning. The crimes had taken place in a lay-by on the A6 road at a place called Dead, Dead Man's Hill near the village of Clop Hill, which is in Bedfordshire. closer examination it was determined that Michael Gregston had been shot twice in the head with a .38 revolver at point blank range. It was also determined that Valerie Storey had been raped and then shot with the same weapon. She had been shot four times in the left shoulder and once in the neck. Valerie Storey was rushed to hospital and although her life was saved she was left paralysed. Michael Gregston was born on the 28th of December of 1924. He was a scientist and worked at the Road Research Laboratory at Slough. At the time of his murder, Michael Gregston was married to Janet, but they had already separated. Janet Gregston lived with the couple's two children. Valerie Storey was born on the 24th of November of 1938. She worked at the same laboratory as Michael Gregston as an assistant. Details of how everything unfolded came mostly through the um, surviving witness and victim Valerie Storey. Late in the evening of the 22nd of August of 1961, Valerie and Michael were sitting in his car in a cornfield at Dorney Reach, which is in Buckinghamshire. Out of nowhere, a man tapped on the driver's door window. Michael Gregston opened the window to see who was there and the man shoved a large black revolver in Michael's face. Valerie claimed that the man then said that he was desperate and that he had been on the run for four months. The man then got into the back of the car and ordered Michael Gregston to drive further into the cornfield and then to stop the car. The victims would be kept there by the armed man for about two hours where he kept talking but without making a lot of sense and without any real purpose. At about 11.30pm the man stated that he was hungry and that he wanted to get some food. He ordered Michael to start the car up and to drive in search of something to eat. Later Michael was ordered to stop at a milk vending machine where Michael was then ordered to go and get him some cigarettes from a shop near the vending machine. Michael Gregston was also told to get some petrol afterwards at a petrol station a short distance away. It was at this point that the couple offered to give the man all of their money as well as the car and to let them go.
Valerie later said that the man seemed to want to be around them and also that he did not seem to have a plan of any kind. At this point, they were driving around the suburbs of North London and without seemingly any real purpose. The journey would continue along the A5 through St Albans and then they joined the A6. It was about 1.30 in the morning at this point. The man then stated that he needed to get some sleep. He ordered Michael Gregston to pull off the A6. He then directed him to Dead Man's Hill and told him to pull into a lay-by. Valerie reported that at first Michael had refused but did pull in when the man became aggressive and used the gun that he was still holding to threaten him. The man then said that he would need to tie them up in order that he could get some sleep. The man tied Valerie's hands behind her back using Michael's tie. He then asked Michael to pass over a bag that was in the car. It was a bag that contained clean clothes, presumably Michael's. As Michael moved to get the bag, he was shot twice. Both shots were to the head and he had apparently died instantly. At this point, Valerie Story started screaming and asked if she could go get some help for her boyfriend. The man ignored her requests. Just after Michael had been shot dead, Valerie Story was ordered to get into the back seat of the car. She initially refused but she was then ordered at gunpoint. She was told to undress which she reluctantly did. The man then raped her. Afterwards he had ordered her to drag the dead body of Michael Gregston out of the car and to dump him in the lay-by. Valerie was then asked to show the killer how to operate the car which was a Morris Minor. She did show him and then she got back out of the car and sat down next to Michael's body. She was obviously hoping the man was going to drive off, but he got out of the car and pointed the gun at her. She pleaded with him not to shoot her. However, he shot at her. He even reloaded the gun at one point. He would end up firing seven times, in which five of them hit Valerie. At this point, she fell back and pretended to be dead, which he must have thought that in all probability she was. But amazingly, she had actually survived, but she was left paralysed. Valerie Storey saw the killer drive off in the direction of Luton. By this point, it was about three o'clock in the morning. The whole ordeal had lasted for about six hours. Because of her injuries, Valerie was unable to get help or try to attract any motorists as she eventually lost consciousness. Fortunately, she was discovered a few hours later and was given medical help. She had managed to give an account of what had taken place and the first police officer on the scene had made notes so at least they would have something to go on, especially not knowing if Valerie's story would survive from her injuries. She would also give another statement to the police later that morning. She told the police that despite the man saying that he had been on the run for about four months, he was however immaculately dressed in a suit. During the police investigation that followed, as well as obtaining as much information as they could from Valerie, they had some good fortune because they found the murder weapon, which was a .38 revolver. It was discovered under the back seat of a bus in London. It was fully loaded and had been wiped clean. However, with the gun was a 
handkerchief, which would end up providing DNA evidence many years later. The police at the time made appeals for any guest houses in the country to report any unusual behaviour or any suspicious guests. A few tips would come in to the police. There was a report of somebody acting suspiciously in a hotel in London. He had apparently locked himself in his room for about five days after the murder. When the police picked him up, he gave them a false name. He said that his name was Frederick Durrant, but he was actually called Peter Alphon. Peter Alphon was a known drifter who was surviving on an inheritance as well as the proceeds from gambling. Peter Alphon was the son of a senior figure at Scotland Yard. When he was asked for for an alibi for the time of the murder, an attempted murder, he told the police that at the time he was with his mother, which the police were able to confirm he was released without charge. About a week after the vicious attacks, Valerie's story helped compile an identikit picture which was released to the public on the 29th of August. However, it was reported that two days after Valerie had provided the information for the identikit, she gave the police a different description of the man involved. Another break in the case came on the 11th of September of the same year. Two cartridge cases were found in a hotel which were matched to the gun that had been used in the murder of Michael Gregston and the attempted murder of Valerie Storey. The hotel manager was interviewed. He told the police that the last occupant of the room where the cartridges were found was someone called James Ryan. However, James Ryan turned out not to actually be the person's real name at all. It was actually James Hanratty, who was 25 years old and had a criminal record for petty crimes such as convictions for stealing cars, larceny and also burglary. When James Hanratty was eventually tracked down, he was asked why he had not come forward to the police and why he had used an alias. He told police it was because he did not have an alibi for that night. James Hanratty denied having any involvement with what the media were calling the A6 murder. However, the police did not believe him and thought he had something to hide. They arrested him on the 14th of October of 1961. They put James Hanratty in an identity parade and Valerie Storey was able to positively identify him as the man who had abducted Michael and herself and who had gone on to murder Michael and then rape and attempted to murder her that fateful night in August. After the identification had been made, James Hanratty was charged with the murder of Michael Gregston. The murder trial got underway at Bedfordshire Court on the 22nd of January of 1962. It had been reported that the trial was originally going to be held at the Old Bailey in London, but for some reason had been changed to a court which was only nine miles away from the murder scene. One theory was that it was because it would make it much easier for Valerie's story to attend due to easier access. Valerie was a paraplegic and not as many provisions were available to enable easy access to buildings during the 60s as there are today. The trial would last for 21 days which was the longest in English history up to that point. James Hanratty was still denying having any knowledge or actual involvement in the crimes that had taken place the year before. He also claimed that at the time of the murders he was actually in Liverpool. As the trial went on, he said that in actual fact he had been in he had not been in Liverpool but he had actually been in Wales. Suspects changing their stories end up not being believed and doubt is often cast in cases where someone suddenly says that they 
their original alibi that they gave was in fact a lie, it will inevitably make people suspicious about their involvement and why they had to lie in the first place. Also, are they only now telling the truth because doubt was raised regarding their alibi anyway, so in all likelihood they were going to get caught out? The jury retired to consider their verdict and came back with a guilty verdict on the charge of murdering Michael Gregston. He was only charged with the one offence. James Hanratty had an appeal against the verdict, but it was dismissed. This was a death sentence case, and because he had been found guilty of murder, he was in fact sentenced to death. James Hanratty was hanged on the 4th of April of 1962, still protesting his innocence right to the end. It was very swift justice in those days, from being charged and then from standing trial to being hanged, only took approximately seven and a half months. James Hanratty's remains were initially buried in the grounds of Bedford to jail, but on the 22nd of February of 1966, his remains were exhumed and reinterred in a grave at Watford. Despite the seemingly swift completion of the proceedings regarding James Hanratty's arrest and his subsequent death, many doubts have been raised about this case. Theories about someone else having carried out the crimes came to light. It was suggested that Valerie Storey's testimony was flawed, which cast some doubt on James Hanratty actually having been guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And although he had already been executed, many investigations and inquiries have been carried out over the years. Eventually, a DNA profile would, in all likelihood, clear the matter up once and for all. Peter Alphon had always been linked to this case pretty much right from the very start of the police investigation. Many people have reportedly said that they believe that there is a very good chance that Peter Alphon attacked Michael and Valerie instead of James Hanratty. It is largely reported that the crimes that took place on the 22nd of August 1961 were not planned. Despite the fact that he had a gun with him, it seems from the reports that it was all carried out in a haphazard manner. He needed to be sh shown by Valerie Storey how to work the car controls, including the pedals. Also, some possible witnesses had reportedly seen car in the early hours of the morning of the 23rd of August 1961 and they had noticed that the man driving the car was driving it erratically and very fast. The car was later abandoned outside a railway station. Peter Avon was a well-connected man and his father was a senior figure within Scotland Yard at the time. There have been suspicions over the years of a police cover-up and that James Hanratty took the blame but that he was actually innocent. However, Valerie Storey did not pick out Peter Alphon in a lineup, but did pick James Hanratty out in a later lineup. The A6 murder was very big news at the time in the UK. It was very unusual in the early 60s for someone to randomly target two people and try to kill both of them using a gun, which was also unusual at this time in the UK. It is thought that the police were under pressure to try to bring someone to justice and that they tried to rush the investigation. It is thought that they did not look into Peter Alphon as well as they should have for whatever reason and that once James Hanratty became a suspect it was pretty much case closed in some ways. Nobody knows for sure if that was the case. 
obviously, because James Hanratty was hanged, it is too late to do anything for him. But the family would have liked his name to be cleared if he was indeed innocent. There has been quite a lot of controversy over the years and even in recent times with this case. The police have been suspected of charging the wrong man and not looking into other suspects. Also, Valerie's story, although not her fault, has apparently not always been a very reliable witness at times. But she did suffer a huge traumatic attack which left her paralysed and her partner dead. And mistakes, even innocent ones, can be made without any bad intentions. Peter Alphon was a colourful character, a bit of a chancer apparently. He was a gambler and he enjoyed the high life and had a well-connected father. Who knows if any strings were pulled to avoid the police looking too deeply into his lifestyle and possible involvement in the A6 murder. James Hanratty's family and family lawyer took on the challenge of trying to clear his name. The cause became very high profile at the time and they had a lot of support. They even had support from John Lennon, who put his voice and his considerable profile behind the case at the time. Luckily, there was DNA evidence taken at the time, which would, decades later, help to hopefully solve the case. DNA was taken from the handkerchief that had been found with the murder weapon and also on Valerie Storey's underwear. Over the years, not very much happened in regards to clearing James Hanratty. There was not DNA technology available, although there was hints of some discrepancies in the evidence that was put forward at the trial. Nothing could really be proven. The doubts with the case, which was dubbed the A6 murder, would linger over for many years up until the 2000s. The case for James Hanratty's innocence was always pursued by his family, and also it was looked at by the opponents of the capital punishment in the United Kingdom. All in all, there would be three Home Office inquiries set up to look into the case. In 1967, Detective Superintendent Douglas Nemo reported to the Home Secretary at the time, Roy Jenkins. In 1975, Lewis Horster QC reported to Roy Jenkins as well. And lastly, in 1996, Detective Tube Chief Superintendent Roger Matthews reported to the then Home Secretary Michael Howard no change to the actual verdict was ever made and no follow-up was made. With advances in DNA, it was decided to test the potential evidence taken from the underwear of victim Valerie Storey and the handkerchief found with the murder weapon. Some of the family members of James Hanratty, namely his mother and a brother, provided their DNA samples so that hopefully James would be exonerated. However, this move backfired because once the tests came back in June of 1999, there was suggestion of a strong familial match. The evidential DNA was two and a half million times more likely to belong to James Hanratty than to anybody else. To clear the case and any remaining doubts to James Hanratty's guilt or innocence, it was decided by Lord Chief Justice Woof that it was in the public's interest and the interest of justice to exhume James Hanratty's body to try and extract DNA from his remains. James Hanratty's body was exhumed in 2001. The DNA profile was 
compared to the DNA taken from the evidence. His DNA was an exact match. The conclusion of the legal aspects of this case happened in 2002 when the Court of Appeal judges ruled that James Hanratty was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. At least a DNA match could, after so many years, close the case once and for all. And even though the murderer had already been given the ultimate punishment, at least those people that were affected by the crimes that James Hanratty carried out know for certain that the right person had been punished and there was not an innocent person hanged at the time. Valerie Storey was sure that she had identified the right person and the other evidence found turned out to be correct also. You can understand the family of James Hanratty trying to clear his name, but they in the end had no choice but to accept the verdict and the punishment that was carried out at the time. Many people were affected by these terrible crimes that were carried out on the 22nd of August 1961. Michael Gregston paid the ultimate price for, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. His two children would grow up without their father, which must have been painful, especially the way that he had died and the aftermath, not to mention that the case kept going back to court and endless inquiries were set up to look into the murder again. The A6 murder is a well-known murder case and was very big news at the time. Valerie Storey also suffered greatly for the rest of her life. She had witnessed her boyfriend being killed after many hours of not knowing what the man who was armed with a gun wanted to do with them. She was also raped and she was shot multiple times and eventually left for dead. She could well have died. It's amazing that she survived. Three hours before somebody actually found her, she also had the ordeal of identifying the person responsible for what had happened and had to give evidence in court against him. She had also been left paralysed and that was in her 20s and, and she would need support for the rest of her life. Valerie Storey died on the 26th of March 2016. The Hanratty family obviously suffered as well. It was not their fault that James had killed someone and attempted to kill another person. James Hanratty's life before he committed murder was a little troubled at times. He was born on the 4th of October of 1936 in Farnborough, which is in Kent. He was the eldest of four sons. His father was also called James and his mother's name was Mary. In 1937, the Hanratty family moved from Kent to Wembley in north-west London. During James Hanratty's childhood, he would often be described as a pathological liar and he was considered to be a slow learner. He attended school in Barnet and although it had been recommended that James should attend a special school, his parents refused to accept that there was anything wrong with him. James Hanratty left school at the age of 15 and he was considered to be illiterate. He got a job at the Wembley Borough Council as a refuse sorter. He had an accident at the age of 16 whereby he had fallen off his bike and injured his head. He remained unconscious for about 10 hours and had to stay in hospital for nine days to recover. James left home shortly afterwards and he moved to Brighton which is in East Sussex and it's not that far from London. He got a job working on the roads. About eight weeks after leaving home and moving to Brighton, he was discovered on the streets, semi-conscious, and apparently suffering from either hunger or exposure. He once again had to go to hospital. At first he was admitted to the Royal Sussex Hospital in Brighton, but shortly afterwards he was transferred to the St Francis Hospital in Haywards Heath, which is in West Sussex. 
He underwent various tests. No actual diagnosis could be determined, but information came out about his home life. James Hanratty claimed that he was frightened of his mother and did not have any feelings whatsoever for his father. James Hanratty was sent to his aunt's home in order that he could try and get better. He got a job working a mechanical digger and managed to hold this job down for coming up three years. James Hanratty was convicted of his first recorded crime in September of 1954 when he was 17 years old. He was placed on probation for stealing a car. Shortly afterwards he started psychiatric treatment at a clinic in London. In October of 1955, at the age of 18, he was sentenced to two years in prison for burglary. He served his sentence at Wormwood Scrubs in the boys' wing. James Hanratty tried to kill himself whilst carrying out his sentence and was placed in the prison hospital as a result. It was at this hospital where a psychiatrist declared James Hanratty was a potential psychopath. Once James left the prison hospital, he got a job cleaning windows with his father. He did not keep the job for very long because on the 3rd of July of 1957, when he was 20 years old and only about five months after being released from prison, he was sentenced at Brighton Magistrates Court for six months for a variety of motoring offences. He served his new sentence at Walton Prison in Liverpool. He was released after only serving four months. However, shortly after being released, he was once again convicted of further motoring offences. He was this time sentenced to three years corrective training at Wandsworth Prison in London and afterwards at Maidstone Prison in Kent. James Hanratty was released from prison in March of 1961 at the age of 24 and just five months later he carried out the A6 murder. James Hanratty was only charged with the murder of Michael Gregston and not the rape or the attempted murder of Valerie Storey. This was because the law at the time would prosecute a capital case with the most serious crime and therefore the death penalty would be applicable if convicted. James Hanratty was one of the last eight or so people to be put to death in the UK because just a few years later it was abolished and has never been reinstated and probably never will be. Obviously, it was not always a deterrent to have the death penalty as a punishment because murders were still being committed. This case was, in my opinion, very interesting as well as being very tragic. The two victims were just meeting up for a drive and one evening they had stopped for a while and James Hanratty had just come across them. It apparently did not seem as though any of it was planned and his behaviour was described by Valerie Storey as erratic. He did not seem to have much of a plan in place. Despite all the so-called doubts about his conviction, it was ultimately proved many years later that he was in fact the person who had carried out the crimes. His family obviously did not want to acknowledge any failings that James Hanratty had and were prepared to oversee the evidence until it was proved beyond a reasonable doubt with the DNA match. But ultimately it was Michael Gregston and Valerie Storey who suffered the most and they did nothing to warrant such hideous events. Credits for information in this podcast go to Wikipedia, Crime and Investigation Network and Murderpedia.org.